We'll be in 1 Samuel 22. I'll give you a moment to flip there. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Brandon. I'm filling in for Chuck today. Uh, incidentally, it's the last day of my pastoral residency, so happy to be here and uh, just preaching, I guess. <laughs> um, so as you think of Chuck this week, uh, be in prayer for him while he's on sabbatical, laboring for our sake. Um, today we're going to look at the next piece of David's story as he flees from Saul. Uh, this chapter recounts two stories that we're going to look at, one of Saul, one of David. I hope to look at these parallel accounts and see what these two men tell us about the true king and what refuge in his upside-down kingdom looks like. To remind you where we've been, David is on the run. He's gone through the priestly city of Nob where he was given the sword of Goliath and bread. And then he fleed to Gath, to the Philistines, thinking to act as a mercenary, uh, but they knew who he was, so he fled from there. And that leads us to our chapter today. So I'm going to begin by reading the first five verses of 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress... Everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. He became commander over them. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So David's alone in this chapter, finding himself after last week alienated from both ally and enemy. Take a moment and consider with me what it'd be like to step into David's shoes. What started as the humble beginnings of a shepherd boy, youngest in his family, no inheritance, quickly looked up. Samuel came and anointed him to be king out of all of his brothers. David quickly became most, the most popular man with the people as he challenged and defeated Goliath. The king's son deferred his princely gear to David, became his closest friend and confidant. He was accepted into the king's household, became commander over the king's armies. He even married the king's daughter. The people of Israel love David. He was the most popular man, and for good reason. If you think from David's perspective, I have to think that knowing he's going to be king from Samuel's anointing, he probably thinks that day's coming sooner rather than later. But all of this popularity drew the negative attention of King Saul, who in his jealousy is now trying to kill David. So can you imagine how David must feel as he comes to this cave? What is he thinking? He's running alone, forced to leave his wife, his friends, the whole life he knew, the champion of Israel turned vagabond. Does he still trust God's promises? 
will I actually be king? He probably wonders. We don't get the luxury of David's inner mind from this chapter, but we do know that he wrote two psalms during his stay in the cave. One of those is Psalm 142. I just want to read that to you, and I want you to hear David's spirit in this psalm. He says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Two things from this. One, David has a clear, broken heart. No doubt grappling with some of those questions. He says no one cares for him. They've laid a trap for him. He cries out to the Lord. He says there's no place for him to find refuge. But there is hope for David. He remembers and believes the promises of God. It's one thing to trust God when things are going well in life. It's another to trust him when you've lost everything. And it is in the losing of things that the true heart is revealed. And David's heart here in losing everything is revealed as still trusting and still hoping in God. The name of the cave, Adullam, means refuge. And it seems that in the Adullam, that in Adullam, uh, something changed in David, and he remembered the promises of God. His perspective went from hopelessness to hopefulness. David begins by saying there's no place for him, no refuge. Later in the psalm, he says God is his refuge. David chose to lead his heart to hope in the truth that he couldn't see despite his sorry condition. I wish that that were true for all of us. That all of us at Church on Mill, in the worst circumstances, we would look to God and say, Lord, I trust you. You are my only refuge. I hope through the rest of this sermon to show you that even in the worst circumstances, God remains the true king. And his refuge is good. Let's continue. Things quickly change for David. Uh, his family, surely under watch by King Saul, uh, flees to him, find refuge in him, along with a strange group of misfits. The text says those who are in distress, debt, and those who are bitter in soul. These are the rabble. They are people unhappy with Saul and unhappy with the way things are going. And they come to David for refuge and make him commander over them. Strange that they find hope in the man without food living in a cave. Unknowingly to David, this group would form the beginning of his kingdom. So David's now in Moab. He asks the king 
if he and his people can stay there while he awaits for God's will, so he's looking to God still. The prophet Gad shows up with a word sending David and his people into the forest of Harath. And so we end this scene with David on the run, now with 400 men and their families, this ragtag group of misfits, and God is speaking to them and directing them through his prophet. Let's pause there for a moment and see what's going on back at the kingdom. What's going on with Saul? Uh, Let's read verse 6 through 8. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in hand, and all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Son of Jesse, none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Look at the image this text evokes of Saul. He's sitting on the height. He's high above his servants, spear in hand. You can almost see the white knuckle grip. He's looming over them. His servants scurrying about, hoping not to draw his attention. No doubt these people are afraid of him. In the last few chapters, every time Saul has talked about holding his spear, he's either under the influence of a bad spirit or he's chucking it at somebody. And if his dictator-like posture wasn't bad enough, listen to what he shouts at them. People of Benjamin. He surrounded himself with his own tribe. Probably some mixture of paranoia and nepotism. Then Saul appeals to their greed, reminding them that he can offer them fields and vineyards, commands of armies. Can the son of Jesse do that? Finally, he complains that all of his servants have conspired against him, that his son is against him, and that even his son has incited David against him. Saul has become an angry, lonely paranoid man. Don't miss the irony here, though. Saul the king, meant to be protector of the realm and holy before God, is now more like the selfish pagan kings of all the other nations than the Israelite godly king that God commanded. But is that not what the people asked for? In 1 Samuel 8, the people say they want a king like all the other nations one who will fight their battles for them. Samuel warns them that this king will take from them, that he'll appoint their sons to command his armies and run before his chariots and work his fields. Saul unashamedly offers these things now to his people. And in sitting with spear in hand, if the the picture could not be more clear, Israel finally has the king they've always wanted and he's insane. Let's see what he does next. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, 
the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn, kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled, and they did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You, turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. Proverbs 27.4 says, Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? Let this story serve as a picture of the damage that unchecked jealousy can cause. Saul has been so consumed by it, so concerned with self-preservation, that he can't even tell friend from foe. He calls the priest to him. Ahimelech gives an account for his actions. We shouldn't be surprised at what Ahimelech says. He calls out Saul for what he is. He says, you're irrational. David, after all, has only done good for you. David's the commander of Saul's armies. Saul's son-in-law, honored among all the people. Why would Saul desire his death? And further, Ahimelech claims to have no knowledge of their conflict at all. But Saul is so consumed, he can't even conceive that Ahimelech is telling the truth. And he sentences his own men who are Israelites to kill the priests of the Lord. Saul's men see that Saul's crazy. They refuse. And if Saul couldn't get any more like the kings of the other nations. He is now commanding a foreigner, an Edomite, to kill the priests of the Lord. If you want to see how far Saul has come, his jealousy is most clearly seen in not just the killing of the priests, but the way that he does it. 
Notice the wording in verse 19. He put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. Does that sound familiar to anybody? The writer of 1 Samuel phrases it this way to remind us of a passage earlier. Chapter 15. When Saul first became king, God commanded Saul to take vengeance on the Amalekites. When the Israelites were coming into the promised land, the Amalekites viciously attacked them. And God promised in defense and love of Israel that he would blot out the memory of Amalek forever. 1 Samuel 15, 2-3 says, God speaking, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out, up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. If you remember the story, Saul goes, he makes war on Amalek, and he wins. But he spares the livestock, he spares the king, and he spares a bunch of the possessions for himself. Saul never carried out the command of the Lord, and for that he was rejected as king. The account of what Saul did to the city of Nob in our passage is almost word for word what God commanded Saul to do with Amalek. Do you see the tragedy here? Saul is a king who in his own jealousy and self-centeredness would do for himself what he would not do for God. God tells Saul to war on the Gentiles. Saul tells a Gentile to war on God. The only survivor, Abiathar, son of the priest who flees to David for refuge, Priests were the lifeline to God. If nothing else, Saul's rampage only led the symbol of God's presence moving right into the arms of David. And so from these two stories, we're left with two pictures, two kings, one in a cave, another on his throne. One is humble and broken. The other is jealous and savage. The irony of this whole passage is that David as a vagabond is providing better refuge for his people than Saul is as king living in Gibeah on his throne. Saul may be king of Israel, but his subjects don't listen to him. He may have vineyards and fields to offer, but he is a cruel master. He will give promotions and commands, but he cares nothing for his people. And when it comes down to it, he's willing to kill his own people for his own self-preservation. On the other hand, you have David, the anointed king who has nothing to his name. He's living in a cave, nothing to offer, scrounging for food, and yet the people flock to him. They make him commander over them. And even in his poor estate, he is doing all he can to provide for refuge, refuge for these people. This is such an upside-down picture. 
Who would rather find safety in a cave when you can have the walls of a kingdom? Who wants to scrounge for food with David when you can pick fruit ripe from the vine from the fields and vineyards with Saul? And yet it is not the materials themselves, not the gifts that make the people safe, but the king who gives them. What I love about this passage is that with all of its drama and contrast, it tells us more than just David is a better king than Saul. It tells us more than just David provides better refuge than Saul. But it actually shows us what the king to come and refuge in his kingdom would look like. The Israelites notoriously believed that when the Messiah would come, he would be like David. And the Bible affirms that. That is a true statement. But the David they picture was a conquering king, one who had already made all of his enemies his footstool. They thought that the Messiah would be the same, that he would come and bring the glory of Israel back with the conquering of all of her enemies. What the Israelites did not expect was that the Messiah would look like David here. And that the Messiah's kingdom would not consist of mighty warriors, but of the humble and lowly. When Jesus came on the scene in Israel, he was so far from this expectation that many missed him. But in this passage, I think we see a lot of similarities between David and Jesus. David spent the majority of his time on the run in 1 Samuel. Here he's living in a cave. Jesus would one day say, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. David attracted not the mighty of Israel, but those in debt, those in distress, the bitter in soul. Jesus would one day say, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call righteous, but sinners. And like David offered refuge to those in need from the wrath of an evil king, Jesus gave us so much more in offering us refuge from the darkest sin inside of ourselves and the wrath we deserve from a holy God. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he was a better king than David. Where David was a good man, he was a man at best. But where Jesus was a man, he was also a God. And unlike David, Jesus' kingdom would reign eternally. Today, King Jesus is still reigning, and he offers eternal refuge to all who would repent. No gimmicks, no bait and switch, just that broken people would turn from their sin to a life focused on loving Christ. And through that, he gives us a new heart and an eternal refuge. Many of us today can rest knowing that we are a part of that kingdom, a kingdom for the lowly of heart and for the poor of spirit. Church, think about this. Find rest in this. For those of you who aren't Christian, this offer is extended to you in this room. Would you consider following King Jesus? And if you don't know how to come into this refuge that he offers, I or the person sitting next to you would love to talk to you today about how you can live under the good kingdom of God.
I want to now make a few applications to help us consider how these eternal realities about the true king and refuge in his kingdom come to bear on us. And what does that mean for us to interact with the world? So three applications from this passage. Application one, refuge in the kingdom of God looks like folly to the world, but wisdom to the people of God. As we've looked at the two kings and their kingdoms in this passage, you can see they're quite different. One has much to offer, looks wise, but on the outside he is deceptive. He cares nothing about you. Meanwhile, the other looks foolish. He has little material wealth, no possessions to give, but he leads to true refuge. This is a picture of the upside-down kingdom of God. Look at what Saul offers his subjects in verse 7. I can give you fields and vineyards and make you commanders of men. Can the son of Jesse do that? If you listen to your heart, you can hear the same lie whispered in your ear today. Just like Saul to his servants, the world whispers to us. Can God give you the same security the same satisfaction that I can give you? Material wealth and power are the instruments of the worldly kingdom. Only it's not fields and vineyards he offers, it's entertainment, jobs, a nice house, an extravagant vacation, retirement accounts, health insurance, a new car, a degree, a relationship, all of these things, a good earthly life. Can the son of Jesse do that for you? Will Jesus do that for you? Do not be fooled, church. These things are not bad things. They're good, actually, in their proper place. But if you build your life on them apart from God, make no mistake, they are damning. You cannot live your life in Saul's kingdom and then die in David's. Saul's kingdom, the world, may look like it sits secure. It has walls, cities, possessions, power, but it is fleeting. And like Saul, it cares nothing about you. Your possessions, your desires, and every idol in your life cares nothing about you. They will not sacrifice for you. They will not fight for you. And they certainly will not die for you. And in an instant, like Saul, when things really matter, they will turn on you. And when you come to the end of your days, the things you thought were secure will perish. And you will perish with them. The world looks good but it makes promises of security that it cannot possibly fulfill. No job lasts forever, no matter how good. No health care plan, carefully managed retirement account can save a man from death. And no amount of luxury today will save you from the reality of spiritual poverty tomorrow. 1 John 2, 17 says, The world is passing away 
along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The only refuge that promises life everlasting and good life is the life given through the blood of Christ on the cross. It is Christ, the true king, who does care for you. He will sacrifice, he will fight, and he did die for you. Remember that and cling to that when you are tempted to sell your soul to lesser things. Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Do we picture the kingdom of God that way? Are we willing to part with our greatest treasures in this world to spend eternity with our God? Do you believe that the creator of all good things can give you a better eternity than the temporary and faulty pleasures that this world promises? That leads to application number two. The kingdom of God does not guarantee a good earthly life. Allow me to define the word good. When I say good here, I don't mean joyful or happy. The kingdom of God will give you a joy-filled life here on earth. When I say good, though, I'm talking about prosperous, easy. I'm talking about the good, the way the world thinks of a good life. The American dream. God does not promise that kind of good earthly life. He promises good eternal life. Let me give you some examples that I see from Scripture. First, David was chosen as king over Saul. God was undoubtedly with him in our passage, but he was still had people chasing after him, still on the run, living in a cave. Jesus wandered from town to town without a permanent home, teaching and performing miracles in front of people who scoffed at him, rebuked him, wanted to kill him. Eventually, he suffered and died. The apostles historically were believed to have all been martyred. As we consider the Christian life, why do we have an expectation that things will always be good? Some of us even believe that the moment we encounter any sort of hardship, that in any form, that God is telling us to pack up and go in a different direction. Have you ever told yourself, well, things got hard for me, so I knew God closed that door. Or God hasn't called me to that. But we really mean, I'm not good at it, I don't like it, or it's too difficult. The Apostle Paul, another example of a man with a hard life following Christ, was beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned, starved, rebuked. There is a whole chapter that goes into the junk this guy had to deal with for the kingdom of God. If the Apostle Paul believed what we believe about hardship, the gospel would have never been carried around the Mediterranean. We wouldn't have the epistles. Jesus would tell his disciples, 
a servant is not greater than his master. If Jesus suffered and died, should we expect any less? Even in this chapter, we look at what happens to those who follow David. If you look at Ahimelech, he's killed for helping David. Following an unpopular king and living in his kingdom does not guarantee a good earthly life. I don't think this means we should go seeking a hard life. I don't think this means that we should assume people who don't have hard lives are not following Jesus. After all, God is a giver of good gifts. He loves us, his people. But we need to stop assuming that we're entitled to a good life. And we need to stop assuming that God only wants us to do the easy things. A servant is not greater than his master. Our master is Christ. Christ humbled himself in this life and was glorified in the next. So shall we be with him if we humbly follow. That leads to application number three. The enemies of God can do nothing but confirm the will of God, even in their opposition. One reason we can rejoice even when this world seeks to destroy us, even when things look terrible on the outside, when things are out of control, it's because our God is in control. Our God is not surprised by things, and all things work together for the good of the saints. I think this passage reminds us of that. If you remember in our study of 1 Samuel at the beginning, um, we were in chapter 2, and Eli was an evil priest. Uh, he was the head priest. He was supposed to make offerings for the people of God, and God cares about his people being able to interact with him. And that's the primary means which way they interact with him. Eli was eating the fat from the offerings that was God's, and he was not stopping his sons who were sleeping with women in the tent of meeting. But God cares about his people, and so he rightly judged Eli for this. I don't think it's on the screen, but I'll read the judgment to you. It's 1 Samuel 2, 31 through 32. It says, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of man. This is a super harsh judgment, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but God was just in delivering it. And even Eli himself recognizes this. But if you listen to what the judgment says, it says, I will cut off the strength of your father's house and your descendants will die by the swords of men. Fast forward to our chapter today. Saul says, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. Ahimelech and his family were the descendants of Eli. When the author describes what's happening, he says, he put to the sword. 
Others making a connection between God's judgment and Saul's rampage on the priests. God is so in control, so sovereign, that when one enemy comes to war against him, they only serve to perform his will. Saul only serves to confirm God's judgment against Eli. God is so in control that when the worst things happen to us in this life, he uses them for his good, for our good. And this is how it has worked through the whole biblical storyline. When Pharaoh ordered the death of all the firstborn of Israel, his daughter adopted Moses into their household. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, he ended up in a position where he brought provision to his whole family in a time of famine. And most clearly, we see this in the life of Christ. When the greatest evil that this world has ever known thought to put God to death, and they only serve to bring about the greatest salvation that mankind has ever known. This means when the worldly kingdom comes to persecute us and when bad things happen to us, God will use those circumstances for our good. Our God is always in control and can always trust him. Like David pictured for us, the kingdom of God does not look like the world, but it is our true and only source of refuge. In a moment, I want to pray in closing. But first, I want you to consider that we're going to uh, be taking the Lord's Supper in a moment. One of the pastors is going to come up and lead us through that. And as we do that, we are proclaiming this kingdom together in this room, proclaiming to one another and to God the eternal refuge in the kingdom that we share together. Think about these things today as we do this together. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You love us and you've proven your love through the death and life of your son. He's bought our eternal salvation and Father, as we are now citizens of a new kingdom, a true kingdom that offers real and good refuge, we just ask that any in this room who do not know that refuge would turn to you. And Father, we thank you and we worship you together this day as your people. Amen.